this is Peter Golan, Dr. Peter Golan, uh, doctor, pastor for how long? 35 years. 35 years. All right. So he just closed his practice. Now he's getting worked on. <laughs> so it's like, it's what happens when you're a doctor, I guess. You, you help everybody else and then you get surgeries like crazy afterwards. Uh, but Peter, I love this man. Uh, I actually had an opportunity to be a youth pastor to his children. And they've all grown. They're starting to have kids. And one of his kids is now planting a church in Surrey. And he, he actually mentored my kid uh, when he was at Bible school. So, yeah, the circle of life right there. So it's so good. I love this family. Love Peter. This man loves the scripture, loves the word of God, and loves to proclaim it to others. And so he's a, definitely an evangelist. So looking forward to here. And this is what we're doing over these next course up until December as we're going through our core values. So this is our first core value, evangelism. Then we're going to hit discipleship for nine weeks and then get into community. And then it's going to be Christmas time. So here we go. Let me pray for Peter, and then we'll get into it. Jesus, we thank you. We thank you for opportunities to be uh, the church together, to gather together, to hear your word preached, and also to be discipled and to grow in, in faith, to grow in understanding of your word, and also to apply it, Jesus. And this is one of those application moments that we just not only hear the word, and uh, but we be doers of it. And so I just pray uh, that we will be faithful servants faithful uh, chosen ones, faithful sons and daughters of yours. And may it start now, Lord. May we surrender the things, the sin in our hearts and, and move forward in uh, your amazing grace. And I pray for Peter as he proclaims your word and teaches us this morning that we will apply it to our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 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 Well, it is truly a delight for Natasha, my wife, and I to be uh, here. It truly is. You know, I get to speak in other places and, um, you know, you meet people and you're just delighted to meet believers all over the world. Um, but uh, this particular group, you with uh, Jer and Jody, uh, is extremely, extremely uh, special. Um, I just want to take a couple of minutes, just to, or seconds, just to uh, look at each of you, knowing that um, we're actually going to be spending eternity together. Um, isn't that a wonderful truth to know that, um, you know, we'll, we'll think back and say, hey, I remember where we met at the Shore Church. Um, I've asked the Lord if I could be a gardener up in the new heaven and earth. So if you have flowers in a garden, I might be the one actually taking care of them for you there. Um, depends what your gifts are and what the Lord chooses for you to do. I want to publicly today say uh, a big thank you to um, Jody and Jer for their involvement in uh, my three boys. You know, when you have children, uh, the, the biggest thing you want to see is your children to be saved uh, above anything else. And uh, we all know families and possibly in our own families. We have siblings and we have children that don't know Jesus. Uh, and we know that those who have come to know the Lord, certain people have been... Um, greatly involved in the nurturing and caring of our children to get them to the stage. We know, of course, that it's the Lord, it's God, but God uses people. And so, Jody and Jared, thank you. Uh, publicly, want to thank you for the care of, of my sons. Um, thank you for being involved in their lives, and thank you for being a big part of leading them to the Lord and training them to be men of God. So I want to just reach out and say a, a big thank you to, to uh, both of you. Today's topic uh, is titled, 
a call to evangelism, and I know that uh, that's a, a core value in your church here, evangelism. And I believe that in many churches it either is or um, it should be. Um, we, we want to look at a, uh, a commandment out of the scripture that many of us have possibly never even realized is a commandment. And also a portion of scripture that uh, is going to remind us of, uh, of some of the responsibilities that we have as believers. The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. So let's read our text. We want to read the words of Jesus out of Luke chapter 10, verses 1 to 3. <clears throat> Luke chapter 10, verses 1 to 3. After this... The Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him, two by two, into every town and place where he himself was about to go. And he said to them, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Go your way. Behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves." So maybe you've read this portion of scripture before as a believer and never realized that there's actually a commandment here. Uh, we are familiar with the Ten Commandments. We're familiar with the greatest commandment and the second greatest commandment that, that the Lord Jesus underlined that we'll be repeating today. But in this scripture here, if you have noticed, that there is actually another commandment for us. Now, this scripture began by saying, after this, the Lord appointed. So what do we mean by after this, after what? So just to give us a little bit of context, let's go back and read the scripture prior to Luke chapter 10, and that's Luke chapter 9, verses 57 to 62. <clears throat> so after this, so what happened just before Jesus was sending these people out? Verse 57 onwards, as they were going along the road, someone said to him, that's to Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. And here are some amazing, one, one of the portions of scripture that is just absolutely mind-boggling. So to another, he said, follow me. But that person said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. So following these statements about people saying, yeah, I'll follow you, Jesus, but they all had excuses as, well, I'll follow you, but I need to do this and this and this and this. And Jesus looked at them and said, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. And then, what does he do? And then our scripture in Luke chapter 10, verse 1. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him two by two into every town and place where he himself was about to go. And he said to them, 
The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, here's the commandment. Pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Go your way. Behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. So Jesus is a wonderful teacher. And so what he does here is he actually presents them with a problem, and then he presents them with a solution. So first the problem and then the solution. So let's look at the problem. The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. So that was a problem back in the days of Jesus. It remains a problem even in our days. In other words, there's a big harvest out there. That harvest is ripe, but there's so few people to actually go and gather it in. Point number one, as a believer, I'm convinced that many Christians do not see the harvest as Jesus sees it. If we read John chapter 4, verse 35, Jesus said the following words, Do you not say, there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see the fields are white for harvest. Unfortunately, I think we as believers many times are the ones that are saying, you know what, it's still not ripe. We need another four months. And Jesus said, no, 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 it, it's ripe. It's ripe. And we said, well, no, 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 just another four months. And Jesus says, no, it's ripe. So Jesus is saying one thing. We often are, as believers, trying to say something else. So here's the problem. Which of the following is the truth? Is Jesus a liar here when he says the harvest is ripe and plentiful? Or is it that we don't see what Jesus sees? He looks, he sees something, and we go, I don't see it. Or is it that we can't see what Jesus sees? He sees, and we're going, I'd like to see it, but I, I just, I don't have that ability to see what Jesus sees. Or is it possibly that no one's really shown us clearly these ripe fields of harvest, and we're just not aware of them? No one's actually pointed them out to us. Well, let's look at these options. Well, the first one, is Jesus a liar? I think all of us would say that's preposterous, that's crazy. Of course, he's not a liar, so he's telling us the truth. We all agree on that. The harvest was ripe then when Jesus asked his disciples to go out and preach the gospel, and the harvest is ripe today. I think as believers, we would probably agree that it's probably more ripe now there's many, many more people. The, the, the entire world is open up to us, and we now see that the harvest is definitely plentiful, certainly more plentiful than what it was back in the days of Jesus. Okay, so Jesus is not a liar. Could it be that no one has actually shown us these ripe and plentiful harvests? Possibly. As a new believer, we may not be aware that you know, there are so many people who need to hear the gospel and need to be led to the Lord. But I think most of us understand if we take even, say, 
you know, British Columbia or Vancouver, the lower mainland, I think the statistics are only about 3% of people go to an evangelical Christian Protestant church on a regular basis. That's three out of 100. In other words, you've got 97% of people that still need to be harvested. And Jesus is telling us that that harvest is plentiful and it is ripe. Well, could it be that we don't see and can't see what Jesus sees? And I think the answer to that, I would propose, is yes. What Jesus sees, often we can't see. We either can't see it or we just don't have the ability to see it. So in order for us to see what Jesus sees, what do we need? Well, as believers, we need the eyes of Jesus, and we need the heart of Jesus. We have human eyes, we have human hearts and souls, but that doesn't allow us to see what Jesus sees until we look at what surrounds us through the eyes of Jesus and through the, the heart of Jesus. And of course, we have that. We have that. Jesus resides in us. The Holy Spirit is within us. So we have the ability to see what Jesus sees, and we have the ability to feel what Jesus sees. We're able to look at the harvest and say, I see what Jesus sees. I agree with him. What is it that Jesus sees? Well, he sees things from God's perspective, not from human perspective. He sees that if people hear the gospel and receive the gospel, they're saved. And if they reject the gospel, they're lost. They're lost forever. That's what he sees. He sees life versus death. Those who choose Christ choose life. Those who reject Christ choose death. Eternal death, eternal separation from God. It's uh, always interesting when you gather together with um, relatives and friends and I remember a, a friend who was sharing with me about her um, granddaughter, and she was saying, my granddaughter, she's so smart, she's so beautiful, you know, she's, she's got such a good education, you know, she, she, she's just a wonderful lady, she, she's going to be successful in this life. What was she sharing with me? She was sharing with me her perspective with human eyes and a human heart. Of course, I knew that her granddaughter did not know Christ. So from God's perspective, her granddaughter was lost, dead in her sins, separated from God, and if she never repented, she was going to go to hell. We can see things from a human perspective or we can look at things from the eyes and heart of Jesus. So if we look at the heart of Jesus, in Matthew chapter 9, verse 36, we see that the word that Scripture uses here is the word compassion. And we read the following, Matthew 9, 36. When Jesus saw the crowds, the harvest, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. So if we look up in the dictionary the word for compassion, we might read the following definition. Compassion, concern for the suffering and consequences of people's choices. 
Well, from a Christian perspective, we might find synonyms. We might find words that, that sound like or help us understand the word com compassion. And we might see words like sensitivity, love, tenderness, warmth, care, charity, kindness, mercy. All of these words help us understand that, okay, these things are kind of describing what it really means to have compassion. In my opinion, the closest word to compassion that we as believers would find in the scripture would be the word love, God's love. Consider Matthew 14, 14. When Jesus went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them. And then it says, and healed their sick. In Colossians 3.12, the Bible here, Apostle Paul talks to us and he also uses the word compassion and he's telling us that we need to have compassion. Jesus had compassion and we see many scriptures using that word compassion when he was dealing with the sick and the lonely and those that were um, demon-possessed and, and lost. But here, Apostle Paul says, in Colossians 3.12, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. It's interesting that Paul uses here not compassionate minds because one can be compassionate intellectually. You know, you can go into a children's hospital onto the cancer ward and you can see all these little children with IVs and bald heads and, and they're all suffering and being treated for cancer. And intellectually, you can actually have compassion. You can actually come out of there thinking, wow, that is amazing. But Jesus didn't just have an intellectual love here. He had a love that led him to action. So he saw the sick, he had compassion, and he healed them. And this is what Apostle Paul is saying. He's saying, put on compassionate hearts, a heart of compassion, something that leads you into action, not just a feeling, oh, there's lost people out there, they're going to hell, they're separated from God. Well, that kind of intellectual compassion is not what Paul is talking about. He wants to lead us into action. Point number two, I personally believe that one of the greatest reasons Christians are not involved in evangelism or sharing their faith in Christ is because they lack sufficient love for God and their neighbor. Now, I'm not saying here that Christians don't have love for their neighbor. What I'm saying is that they lack sufficient love for God and their neighbor. And there's a difference. I believe that every believer who has been born again has the Holy Spirit, and in that, we are full or filled with God's love. But it's a love that starts small and, and burns, the fire burns over time. So our love grows the greater we become knowledgeable in God and know him personally through our experiences and through the knowledge of Scripture and through the Holy Spirit sanctifying us and so forth. 
So many times as believers, we have love for the lost, but it's just not sufficient. It's not enough to draw us out there to do something. You might love the kids in the children's hospital and the cancer ward, but do you have sufficient love for them to be there on a regular basis and care for them? That's a, that's, that, that, that requires much, much more love. So the priority of love, this kind of love that we need for the lost, has to be that we have to love God first, and then we have to love people and ourselves second. There has to be a priority in our love. If we place the love of people above the love of God, that's idol worship. That, that's, that's putting God second. If we place God or loving him first and then people second, and us in that second bracket, then we are doing what Scripture is teaching us. So let's read the greatest commandment. And this uh, is written in several portions of Scripture, but let's look at it in Matthew chapter 22, verses 37 to 38. And Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. So if the Scripture says this is the great and first commandment, then it makes sense to us that this is the one that has to be the priority in our lives. There is no greater commandment. And the ability to fulfill all other commandments depends on us fulfilling the first one. If we don't obey the first one, it's impossible for us to obey the rest. And the greater we love God, the more we love the second commandment, which is people, the more we fulfill it and ourselves and do all the other things that God calls us to do. So let's look at the second commandment, Matthew 22. It's the, sec it's the next scripture after this. It's chapter 22, verse 39. And Jesus said, and the second commandment is like this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Let's just underline a couple of things. To love God, we need to love him with all of our hearts, all of our soul, all of our mind, all of our strength. Have we reached that level? All of us would say no. We strive to reach that level, but we've never reached the level where we love him with all of our heart and all of our mind and all of our soul and so forth, all of our strength. But we, we're... we're, we're heading in that direction. So could it be possible that we're at a position where we have insufficient love and we need that love for God to grow greater in order for us then to love people? And how are we to love our neighbor? It says, love your neighbor as ourselves. Yeah, and that's not easy to do. But the only way we get to love our neighbor and our neighbor is everybody we meet Everybody that God brings in contact with us on our daily life is our neighbor. It could be the people at work, the people at school, the people we meet on the street, on holidays, everywhere we go. As soon as we meet someone and that person comes into our life, in whichever form, it might be just to say hello, it might be that we have a meal with them, but that's our neighbor at that moment. And we're supposed to love them as ourselves. Have we reached that intensity of love? So I've just said that 
one of the biggest reasons Christians are not sharing their faith in this world, and it possibly relates to you and I, is that we lack sufficient love for God and for the lost sinner. But, you know, we also know that there are many other reasons why we sometimes don't share our faith. Well, here's a few that I've come across uh, in my own life. These are my reasons, but I also realize that these are reasons that, that touch many other believers. One is that we just don't understand what true biblical evangelism is. We've, we've come to think, okay, this is evangelism, but the Bible has another definition possibly of evangelism. Do we enough, know enough what the Bible teaches us about evangelism? Number two, it could be that we're afraid to talk to people, fear. Fear is often something that stops us. We're afraid of being rejected. We're afraid that people won't accept what we say. We're afraid that we're going to look stupid in that situation. We're afraid of many things. And fear just prevents us from sharing our faith in Christ. It could be that we just don't know the gospel well enough to know what to share. I'd love to talk to people about, you know, the planet Saturn but I just don't know anything about it. So I'm going to stay away from that topic because I don't know anything about it. You're going to talk about things you know. So it's possible that believers aren't sharing their faith because they, they just don't know enough about the gospel to be able to share the gospel with others. It could be that the leaders of our churches, of our Bible schools, of our seminaries, of our Christian schools and so forth haven't really equipped us and our children to share the gospel. We just, we haven't been equipped. Well, let's look at how we can have the compassion of Christ. Going back to this seeing people, seeing the harvest through the eyes and heart of Jesus. Why is it that God wants people to be saved anyway? Why does he want them saved? Well, we could talk on this topic for a long time, but let's just put it in a couple of phrases. One, for his glory, but we also see because he loves them, okay? Jesus died on the cross for his glory, the glory of the Father, the glory of the Son, but he did it because he loves us. So why, why should we want lost people to be saved? Does he want us to have the same cause, the same reason? Yes, Why should we want the lost sinner to be saved? Well, the main reason is not because we love them, but because God loves them. God loves them. And we want to do it to glorify God. It would be false to say that every person I speak to about Jesus I love them. I care about them. I have compassion. But you know, to truly love them, I don't even know these people. It's very hard. And yet I also know that without love, my attempts to lead them to Christ are absolutely useless. Everything we do for the Lord without love is useless. It's just noise. We need to be motivated by love. Always remember that your motivation of love needs to be your love for God first. 
I don't know that person. How can I love them? Yeah, but you love God. The motivation of love is your love for God. If you love God, you will then share your faith. Yes, over time, you will have that compassion and love for the lost. But always place your love for God as priority. The only way you and I will learn to love the sinner, the lost person more and more, is for us to love God more and more. Now, there's a wonderful portion of Scripture that Apostle John left us in 1 John chapter 4, verse 7 to 21. And I want us just to read this because it's, it's a real portion on love. And it talks about our love for God and God's love for us Let's just let the scripture speak to us. It's, it's a very important scripture, so let's just read it slowly. 1 John 4, verse 7 to 21. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Uh, John here is talking specifically to believers. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us his spirit. And we have seen and testify that the father has sent his son to be the savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the son of God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God. And God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is so, also are we in this world. There is no fear in love. But perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar, for he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, Whoever loves God must also love his brother. Let those words just speak to us through the Holy Spirit in helping us to understand just how much priority we need to place on loving God and in doing so we'll love one another even more, particularly the lost. And I think we've, as believers, um, you know, despite the fact that we confess to know Jesus, um, you know, selfishness has often taken the place of this love of God. And so we've placed the love of ourselves, the love of our children, the love of our grandchildren, and so forth, above the love of God. And, and no matter how much we confess that we love God more than anything else, often when we evaluate our walk with the Lord, we find that 
Actually, you know, if Jesus came and assessed our love for him compared to the love of other things, we'll often find that Jesus is not on the first place. And yet that's the greatest and first commandment. Now, the Bible also talks about the fact that Christians can actually lose their first love. And uh, I think that that's so true. So what is this first love that the Bible talks about? Well, in Revelations chapter 2, verse 4, God is talking to the church in Ephesus. And we see the following words. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. So God has something against this church, a church. He's not talking to one individual. He's talking to a church. You, church of Ephesus, I have this, you, you're a wonderful church, but there's one thing I have against you. You have abandoned your first love. I can just see those people reading that letter in shock. What do you mean? Of course we love you, Lord. Of course we love you, Jesus. No, you've actually abandoned your first love. So what is this first love? Well, many theologians and preachers would say, and I think correctly, that that first love is the, the initial love we had when we first came to know Jesus as Lord and Savior. You know, we, it was, we came to know the Lord. I mean, those of us who realized, wow, I was going to hell and now Jesus saved me from that. You know, God has made me his son and daughter. He's adopted. I mean, they're just the thrill of knowing we're saved. And we just fall in love with God. I remember my first love. Wow. I just, I just fell in love with Jesus in a way that I cannot describe to you. But there's another first love that many theologians talk about, and that's the love of sharing their faith with non-believers. So many would say that the first love is actually what happened in this church is this church abandoned their love for the lost. They stopped talking to people about Jesus. They forgot to include them and forgot to share the gospel. They were concerned about themselves and forgot the lost and that they abandoned this first love. Well, rather than arguing which of those two is truly the first love, I would like to state that they're both correct. I think they're both correct. If you truly love God, you're going to love the sinner. If you've abandoned your love for the lost sinner, it's very possible that your love for God has waned. In Revelations chapter 2, verse 4, after saying that this church lost their first love, God says the following. In verse 5, Revelations 2, 5. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. So this wasn't just a feeling. Do the works you did at first. Remember that first love you had? Remember it led you to share the gospel, share your faith, to care for the lost? Well, remember and begin doing it again. If not, here's the warning. I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. 
could it be that the lack of evangelism, the lack of sharing our faith with the lost, is one of the reasons some of our Christian churches are falling apart? People are leaving. Could it be that this promise, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, he's talking to the church, unless you repent. There's a, there's, there's a teaching here from the Lord that abandoning this evangelism or sharing the faith requires repentance. It's not just, okay, we haven't been doing it, let's do it. No, let's repent from the lack of that first love because if we don't repent, there's consequences. So we've talked about the problem. What is the solution? Thank you, Lord, that you don't just present us with problems, but you present us with solutions. And if you're looking to see something here that I'm going to say that's somehow magical, you're not going to hear it. You're going to hear what you already know. But may the Holy Spirit underline what we already know, that we might return to it. So let's go back to our scripture, Luke chapter 10, verses 1 to 3. Let's look at the solution that's written in verse 2. And Jesus said to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. That was the problem. Now here's the solution. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. So he's actually giving us the solution. So let's look at the solution and break it down. So the first thing he says, therefore, pray. So the first part of the solution is pray, is prayer. Well, as a church, I don't think that your church, who, who has evangelism as, as one of its goals, would say that we don't pray. I'm sure everyone would say, of course we pray. Well, let's look at the kind of prayer that Jesus is asking us to do. He says, pray earnestly. Then he says, pray to the Lord of the harvest. And then he says, Pray that the Lord of the harvest will send out laborers into his harvest. So there's three points of what our prayer needs to look at. So let's discuss them. The first one, pray earnestly. What does that mean? Pray earnestly. Well, we could use things like pray regularly. Pray with fasting. Pray with others, your family, your children, your church. Pray with intensity. Pray as a church together. Gather together and pray for this need. Spend a few minutes or a, d a day or hours praying. Have a special place as a retreat for prayer. Pray earnestly. So in listening to this message, the question all of us have to ask is, am I fulfilling this commandment? Am I praying earnestly? The second part of the phrase is pray to the Lord of the harvest. Now, it makes sense. Of course, of course we pray to the Lord. Of course we pray to the Lord. We pray to God. We ask God for this. But let's underline the, the next words is the Lord of the harvest. So what does that mean? That means God is in control of the harvest. He is ruler over the harvest. He is sovereign over the harvest. He controls every aspect of the harvest. He knows everything about the harvest. That amazes me. It's his harvest. And he's in control. 
And we're praying to the one who's in control. This is not the devil's harvest and we're asking, oh God, please defeat the devil. No, this is God's harvest, which is ripe and plentiful. So we're walking into God's harvest, doing God's work. Next, he says to send out laborers into his harvest. To send out. So who are we asking to send out laborers? God. Why send them into the harvest? Because it's plentiful and it's ripe. And who's made the harvest ripe? God has. God has made it ripe. God has made it plentiful. He's the Lord of the harvest. Matthew chapter 4, verse 35 to 38. Wonderful words on evangelism. Matthew 4, 35 to 38. Do you not say there are yet four months? Then comes the harvest. Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I send you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. So Jesus is saying here, I want you to pray that God would send out people into the harvest. I think in that prayer, though, I think it makes sense that he, we include ourselves. God, please send workers into the harvest. We're also saying, please send me. I think God instructs all believers to share their faith in Christ and not just a few people who seem to have the gift of evangelism. Now, can I ask you a very personal question? How many here believe that you have the spiritual gift, the spiritual gift, okay, not just that you share your faith, but you have the spiritual gift of evangelism? Put up your hand if you think you have the spiritual gift of evangelism, okay? Wonderful. A couple of people. That's basically about what it is through all the groups that I visit and see that there might be one or two in a hundred where people actually have that gift. So if we left evangelism or sharing the faith to those people who had the spiritual gift, that would mean that only one or two people in our church would be sharing their faith. But Jesus is actually inviting every believer to share their faith, every one of us. So let's consider the second part of the solution. The first part was pray, and we saw here pray earnestly, and we saw here, you know, pray to the Lord of the harvest, and we saw here pray that the Lord of the harvest send out laborers into his harvest. And then what does he say? The second part of the solution is go. Go. You've prayed, now go your way. So I think... As believers, before we go, there has to be another prayer. Although it's not included in this commandment, it is included in other areas. So Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11 and 12, Apostle Paul talks about being equipped, equipped. So Ephesians 4, 11 and 12, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers for what purpose? To equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body 
of Christ. Here's a question. As a believer, do you feel that you have been equipped through your Christian walk to share your faith in Christ? You don't have to answer here, just in your own heart. Have you felt that you've actually been equipped to share your faith? Now, most Christians that I would ask would say, no, I don't. I don't feel like I've been equipped to share my faith in Christ. I'm a Christian. I know the Bible, I think, to some degree, but I don't feel equipped to share my faith. And I would say that to my own shame as a leader in the church for many years that I have not done a good job in equipping people to share their faith, to do evangelism. Somehow we have been brought up to think that if you're a Christian, you automatically will know how to share your faith. You just, you've got the genes to do it. You're a Christian and you should do it. Well, let me give you an example. I'm a family doctor and I'm a physician. So somebody comes to me and says, you know, Dr. Golan, I've got a brain tumor. Can you cut the brain tumor out? I'll go, of course I can't. I'm not equipped to cut out brain tumors. Yeah, but you're a doctor, aren't you? Yeah, but I haven't been equipped to do that particular work. Or they might come and say, well, can you do a cataract operation on me? No, I can't. Well, why not? You're a doctor, don't, aren't you? Yes, I'm a doctor, but I've not been equipped. So why is it that we feel that just because you're a Christian that you're now equipped to share your faith? The answer is we're not. The being equipped actually means finding what tools you need to use, being taught how to use those tools, being given the ability to practice using those tools, like in apprenticeship or something, where we practice, and then when we feel comfortable, then to be able to go out and share it. As I said before, many Christians would say they're too afraid to share their faith, or they don't know the gospel well enough to share their faith, or they don't know what the Bible teaches on evangelism, or they've never been given the ability to learn how to share the gospel. So, there needs to be an equipping before we go. If I was to go and do that cataract surgery, I would make a mess of it. If I was to do that brain surgery, I would make a mess of it. And then people would come back and say, you made a mess of it. But you asked me to do it. Yeah, but you should have been equipped before you did it. In other words, if I do something that I'm not equipped, I could actually mess it up? Absolutely. Do you know, as believers, many of us actually share what I would call the false gospel. If you don't know the gospel well enough, what ends up happening is you tell people about Christ, but you present them possibly with the false teaching. If you've never mentioned in the gospel the death of Jesus and his resurrection, would that be the gospel? If you never mentioned to people the need to surrender their lives fully to Jesus, that they need to repent, would that be the full gospel? So we need to know how to do things well if we want to do a good job of it as well. 
By the way, what age should we be teaching children how to share their faith? Should we wait until they're 18 and 19? I hear or no, I agree. What age should we be teaching people how to swim? When they're 30 or when they're five? Well, we know that the earlier we start, the more comfortable people are in doing what they want to do. If you want a child, if you start a child and teach them to swim at an early age, they'll be a great swimmer by the time they're adults. If you, for the first time, throw in an adult into the ocean and say, swim, the fear will overtake that person. They've never been used to that. They're afraid of water. So the earlier we can start teaching our children the gospel and how to share the gospel, the more comfortable they're going to be as they grow up. So let's remind ourselves that when God says go, he wants us to be equipped. Where is he sending us? Well, he's sending us, as we've already said, into his fields, into his harvest. Let's look at Luke 10, verse 1. Luke 10, verse 1. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others. We've already read the scripture, but let's read it again to emphasize another phrase. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him, two by two, into every town and place where he himself was about to go where he himself was about to go. So Jesus sends these people into these places and says, go on, I'm going to be there. Go ahead, I'll meet you there. Now Jesus here is in human form. He can't be everywhere at one place. But we now have the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit can be everywhere at one place. So when he sends us into his fields, he's going to be there. He says, Peter, listen, I'm going to send you into my field. Let me tell you, I'm the Lord of that field. That field is mine. It's not the devil's. It's mine. Sure, you'll meet wolves. And I'm sending you not as a hunter with a rifle. I'm sending you as a lamb into that field. But do know it's my field. I'm in control of every aspect. And let me, know, let me tell you, it's ripe. It's ripe for harvest. And when you get there, I want you to know, I will be ahead of you and I'll be with you. And when you leave, I'll be here continuing the work that you started. Those are the promises that we have from the Lord. So we begin with prayer. Then we become equipped. And then we go. Praying is a command, and going is a command. The question is, are we willing to obey both commands? So let's end with just a few points of maybe application. Now, there's a lot of guilty feelings that Christians often feel, and I'm not here to make you feel guilty. Because many Christians have never shared their faith. Many Christians are afraid to share their faith. You know, if we have a potluck, I'm sure many of us will attend. You know, if we have a, 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 a day of worship, most of us will attend. You know, Bible study, we'll have less people. A time of prayer and fasting, even less. A day when we're going to go out and share our faith, even less. 
And so we're often made to feel guilty. We, we just, we're uncomfortable. We feel guilty. And I'm not here to make you feel guilty. I'm here to encourage you. First to see that this scripture is a command. And that if we're not doing it, we need to repent. Secondly, that we need to say to ourselves, Lord, please equip me. And we need to be prepared to be equipped. So when the pastor says, okay, we're going to have some teaching on evangelism, we're going to be learning this and scripture learning and memorizing and we're going to show you how to do it, are we willing to give up our time to be able to say, I'm going to be there because this is important for me. This might require sacrificing some evenings or a day. Once we're equipped with the gospel, once we feel like we are equipped, then the question is, are we willing to go and share? If you here are an evangelist or a teacher or a leader, dads, moms, even the leaders of your own home, are you willing to take the time to equip your own children on how to share their faith? You might say, well, I don't even know myself. Well, it just needs to become a higher priority in our homes and in our churches and in our Sunday schools and in our Christian schools to say, let's learn how to do this well. And finally, I'm sure that most people here know Jesus as Lord and Savior. But you know, just in case, just in case there's even one here and you've not really made that full commitment to Christ, yeah, you know, you talk about maybe putting Christ first in your life, but the reality is, if it was Jesus that came to assess that, he might find that the fulfillment of the first commandment to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength really, really isn't being fulfilled. And how can you love your neighbor as yourself when you haven't even learned to love God So maybe you just need to renew the love you have for the Lord and say, Lord, I do lack sufficient love for you and for the lost. And whatever it takes, whatever it takes, help me so that that love for you increases and that that love for my neighbor, for the lost particularly, also increases. Let's bow for a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, first we come to you, Lord, with repentance. We don't want to be that church in Ephesus that lost their first love. Lord, you love them enough to write them a letter and say to them, I have this against you, repent, and return back to that first love. Return back to the actions that you had initially. Father, we repent before you. I repent before you. Lord, we know that our love for you and the lost often waxes and wanes. There, there are times when we, we think we just, we're in love with you and other times where we just seem to forget you. Increase that love we have for you. Increase that love we have for the lost. Increase that love we have believer to believer. 
Lord, may we encourage one another. May we equip one another. May we care about equipping our children, our young people, our youth. Father, I pray for the leadership of this church, that you would give them wisdom in knowing how to equip their flock, Lord, and that together as one family, they might continue sharing the gospel and leading people to Christ. Thank you that the harvest is yours, that you are sovereign of your harvest. And Father, we know that you're sending us out into that harvest. Father, I pray today that you would teach us what it means to pray earnestly for that harvest. And if we have not been doing that, Lord, that you would remind us regularly to pray for the harvest, to pray for the lost, and to pray that, that you, Lord, would send out workers into the harvest and that one of those people in that group of workers is me, it's us. Encourage us today, Lord, encourage us. And continue teaching us and leading us. And we will be thrilled to see, Lord, as the harvest comes in, knowing that this is for your glory because you love us and you love the lost. In Jesus' name we pray.